Hello, everybody, and welcome to Paris Podcast, the podcast that inspires and motivates. Um, today, I have a very special guest, Eric Jogona, who's a Kenyan climate um, activist who I'm very inspired by because I'm very passionate about climate activism. And it's really nice to be talking to someone who's doing work in Africa, uh, Kenya, uh, on promoting um, climate change, or rather ending climate change um, and empowering other young people to do the same. So, so, so thank you so much, Eric, for your time today. How are you? I am good. Uh, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, glad it's Friday, glad it's the weekend. Uh, as I said, it's been a, a long week, um, but the weather's improving over here, so, so it's not too bad. How, how is it over there, Nairobi? Well, it's pretty good, um, fairly well. Um, it's a bit sunny, although it rains intermittently, yeah. Yes, yeah, I was there a few weeks ago, and um, in the evening it rains a lot. I think it is the rainy season now, isn't it? So it's... Yeah, but yeah. it doesn't rain, like... Um, consequently it's just like intermittently yeah yeah which is which is good not like over here in england where it rains it can rain sometimes the whole day or whole week even um but yeah so um it'll be really good for those who don't know you eric um you know if you could tell us a little bit about yourself um your background and, and what got you into environment environmental activism all right um so as you have had, my name is Eric Kijibuna, I'm a youth climate justice organizer here in Nairobi, Kenya. I happen to be 19, although I am turning 20 this month. Um, and um, I began climate activism when I was um, around 16, 17, in um, my second year of high school. If you're a Kenyan, you know Form 2. I was in Form 2 back then. And um, at the time, um, a year before Nairobi was hit by a severe drought that left many um, many without water, there was increased water rationing in Nairobi, and particularly in my school where we did not have any water reserves. So as a result, and especially my school had like a huge number of students. So there was a lot of like, you know, um, stress. Uh, we had already stressed the school's water system. So it was even expensive for my school to be able to buy water. And as a result, um, having seen the impact, um, the climate crisis, um, the droughts had on children in our very own community, I think it sparked um, the need to act. And uh, the following year, I joined um, Zero Hour and that marks my debut in the global youth climate movement. In Zero Hour, um, which is also a youth-led climate movement, I joined the comms team where um, I was basically working on using digital platforms to um, educate our digital audiences on the impacts the climate crisis is having on different communities, but also providing the opportunity for more people to take action by providing tangible worries of how people can take action to address the climate crisis. And then the following year, I moved on to Polita's Out, where I briefly worked as the Sub-Saharan African coordinator. That was during the COVID-19 pandemic, the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we had a long school break and uh, school was cut off. Um, I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but yeah that happened and I got the opportunity to get more involved in the youth climate movement, um, especially within Polluters Out. And um, that's also around the time where I joined um, Fridays for Future, which is a youth-led global climate movement, uh, which basically uses striking or rather like civil disobedience as a 
the way of um, raising um, attention on the urgent need to act on the climate crisis. And then around um, in September of 2020, then um, here in Kenya, I think uh, one thing that happened was that um, the US government wanted to, and US government influenced by fossil fuel companies in, um, in the US, wanted to use the US-Kenya uh, trade deal to export plastic, plastic waste to African countries, especially Kenya. Uh, and they were marking it as making a very neoliberal approach, and that also threatened um, uh, threatened um, Kenya's laws, which Kenya has a very tight law on uh, plastic um, compared to any other country in the world. And as a result, um, having seen the impacts of uh, plastic waste is having on uh, local communities, and knowing that all less than ten percent of plastic that is ever used is actually recycled. So um, I think it's it just sparks the need to act. And as a result, we organized a, a strike in Nairobi in September. And later on, that moved into creating an organization, the Kenya Environmental Action Network, uh, where um, I worked as its uh, first ever international affairs director but now i work in the same organization but as the campaigns director where i just work on supporting keen kenya environmental network is a network of youth-led um, youth organizations but also youth climate activists and i work to support them um, create their own campaigns but also work create um, brand new campaigns and uh, manage our campaigns profile overall um, aside from that i also work with um UNICEF um, as a UNICEF young leader, where I worked on I work on issues around health and climate, and aside from that, I also work with Oxfam Novib, where I am a funds advisory committee member, where I assist them in developing criteria for funding um, or providing funds. Um, to different organizations so that they can be able to execute or basically organize their own campaigns, do their own work. It's focused on 13 countries like supply chains um, and that kind of thing. So, yeah. yeah. So, you do a lot. Uh, how do you do have... overview of what I do? So, you, you do so much, Eric. I mean, how do you even have the time? I mean, it's great to hear how. You know, you, your experience has led you to become, you know, a, a champion and a, and a pioneer in your kind of area and in your school to, um, you know, help lead the change, well, lead the work against, you know, climate change and information and kind of galvanizing people. But how do you have the time to do all that? I mean, it must take a lot of your of your day to day and, and kind of on and on your day to day. How do you kind of manage all these different responsibilities that you have? Um, at the moment, I am on a gap year. I'm on a gap year taking to focus. I'm taking a gap year to specifically focus on on um, climate organizing. But also, that's not entirely true because I'm also on a gap year because I'm trying to raise uh, money to be able to pay for my university. So there are those two things. So it just works. Okay, now what am I going to do? Okay, um, let me do. Let me continue with my environmental organizing work. And um, so basically, um, I think there are different time commitments to each organization. I can only take what I can be able to handle. And I think overall, it's about um, the 
impact I'm trying to make as opposed to the actual work. Um, I'm not sure. Oh, sorry, I that mean, what actually? Sorry, say that again, Eric. Um, so what I meant was that um, I think it depends. It's a bit more nuanced on how I'm able to manage my work. Overall, it just boils down to trying to take up what I can be able to manage mm -hmm. and focusing on the work, the passion, I think. Yeah. Although, of course, I do recognize that I tend to overwork myself at times. Yeah. It sounds like, but I mean, when you're passionate about something, I guess, it, as you're saying, it's not work. It's, it's, um, it's bigger than that. And, and, um, and so how, how easy is it to, so for other young people, um, we'll talk about Kenyan context, because obviously that's, that's where you're based at the moment, but how, is, how easy is it for people to get involved in climate activism? You know, how do you approach organizations? How did you get you know, these amazing roles and responsibilities that you've got? Do you just email people? Do you, you know, how do you do this? Because I think it'll be interesting to a number of people interested on how to go about working and getting involved. Um, I think it depends. What, what I know is that when I was, especially as a teenager here in Kenya, um, in youth-led youth -led environmental organizations here in Kenya, and that mean, that's mainly because um, of, you know, like, uh, people in high school are not known to like are not necessarily working in organizations and that's mainly because uh, of school and all that especially because many people are like in boarding schools so that, that doesn't provide an engagement opportunity so it was definitely very hard to join um, this movement and my my entry point, an American organization that was there, of course, that's definitely a privilege to be able to access such spaces. Um, but that, and that is what I'm literally working to change, like um, creating better entry points to these spaces, especially here in Kenya, so that people are able to take part in environmental action here in Kenya. And that is uh, what basically KIN is all about, the Kenya Environmental Action Network. So I guess what basically you can do if you feel like you want to take part, you join, um, there's a sign up for, is that simple as a, uh, um filling up a sign up form on the website and uh, you're going to be added into our spaces and uh, there are very tangible ways to work on our own campaigns that kind of thing yeah thank you i think that that's really good um information and and again yeah people just kind of looking around different organizations that they're interested in and i guess reaching out and seeing whether there's opportunities out there for them but i think you working on making it easier for people to get involved um particularly some of these roles um, are not always paid. So just not making it such a difficult, making it difficult for people to get through. So they feel like, actually, I'd rather maybe focus on, on something else, or this is exactly the same as applying for a paid job. So I'm probably going to put my efforts on that. Um, I know when I was doing internships uh, back in the day, it just felt like you were actually applying for a full-time job. <laughs> so yeah, if it's easier just to get into an opportunity where you can fill the space, see whether it's of interest, and then and then I guess take it from there. Um, so on to climate change itself. So 
you know, clearly our climate is under attack. Um, you just need, and you've mentioned a bit about severe weather, um, you know, droughts, fires, um, high sea levels, um, storm issues with farming. Um, why do you think we still have climate skepticism? Because it's clear, I mean, I don't know what news they're reading, but it's obvious that there's an issue um, with the climate and there's still so much resistance to it. What, why do you think that is? Um, I think, um, I think, it's um it's definitely important to look at it from the point of um information um access to information but also what information people have access to because if you look at um reports on the influence um fossil fuel companies have on um the, the influence fossil fuel companies have on uh, on changing people's perceptions about the science it's huge i mean fossil fuel companies are literally investing in pr farms that kind of thing and have invested in pr farms uh, media to try and uh, tip the skills or actually create climate skepticism so it's 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 uh, the information that people receive is uh, is kind of like um, a bit faulty and to actually solve that is try and increase or increase science communication very well but i mean you don't even need to have the science to be able to to kind of like understand that the climate crisis is happening and that's the true with even local communities here so i mean it, it depends on who exactly because i feel like local communities here do understand the climate crisis i mean it's not easy for farm for it's not that hard for a farmer to note that um, they're no longer able to, to have access to water to plant their own trees or like you know when floods happen it's pretty obvious so i guess it depends on who i mean i know i know for sure that um, the science uh, skeptics uh, or the climate uh, skeptics have, are the loudest mouths and that's because they're found they are funded by fossil fuel companies to be the loudest mouths if you look especially at politicians who are skeptics uh, uh, and that's mostly far right uh, they're the loudest mouths and that's because they have the power um, to communicate that yeah so yeah. I, I, it, it depends on what is on mainstream, mainstream, uh, mainstream, mainstream media, yeah. and who actually influences what is there. But that doesn't. What is on mainstream media doesn't necessarily reflect what the knowledge of local communities and whether or not they actually know that the climate crisis is affecting them. So mm -hmm. I wouldn't say it. It it's 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 a I think nuanced. I would say yeah. Okay, that's interesting because um, I, I always wonder with this who this benefits denying that there's climate change. As you said, you know, people can see that you know you can't grow crops. Uh, yeah, the weather, um, floods, etc. So how how does this how would this benefit fossil fuel companies? You know, um, and again, it's not necessarily a question like a challenge to you, but it, I just I just don't understand. Do you understand? Because I really don't understand who um, benefits yeah. to deny it I, I just think it because it affects us all right so no matter how much money you have you will have you will experience climate change won't you in some respect but it's people still deny um, it and I just don't I yeah. think I think there is benefit specifically to the fossil fuel industry because once the people have wrong information then they're not able to take action and that's basically what they want right. um, to continue emitting Right. Uh, carbon. So, and the, the, so I think it's basically maintaining of the status quo 
for the fossil fuel companies. It's uh, it's the underlying problem is uh, capitalist interests. Mm -hmm. I think it would boil down to that. So I think once the people have wrong information and there there seriously is a misinformation crisis, then people are not necessarily taking action because uh, and, and that leads to them benefit keeping to you know benefiting. Mm. Yeah, and um, that, that's what I would say. Yes. Okay. Yes, this come on this comes on nicely to um, influence then governments and and um, you know key stakeholders and people in, in around the world um so specifically talking about cop 26 so i saw that you attended um last year um and obviously that has you know most some of the most powerful people in in the world um so there's two questions here so how comes or do you do you know what the challenges are for them having influence on these fossil fuel companies to start with because obviously they're, they're you know this cop 26 people come together to make a pledge and come and make changes, um, policy changes. So how comes they don't have enough um, power? I, I don't know what, what the resistance is there in terms of them being able to address those folks that are doing these fossil fuel stuff. And um, so I think let's start with that. So in terms of COP26, that should be a vehicle to kind of address these, you know, climate skeptics and, and kind of um, make people make the right decisions with things that they farm and produce. Um, but there still obviously is a resistance. So do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think I have so many thoughts on that. If I was to talk <laughs> about that, I'd like go the whole day. But I'll try to summarize it a bit. So um, first of all, for people who are listening, I don't know what COP26 is. I guess um, COP26 is a global decision-making space where um, world leaders meet to discuss um, climate issues under the Paris Agreement and review its implementation, make commitments, that kind of thing. So why hasn't COP26 worked? Um, I think, I, I, why, why has COP26 not worked? Um, first of all, I think COP26, I think we need to realize that COP26 was the 26th COP, the 26th opportunity to tackle, the 26th failed opportunity to tackle the climate crisis. One too many, there has been literally 26 opportunities but I mean, also, I think um, we don't need to limit the ability to take climate action to only conferences. If they literally want even now, they can take climate action, um, introduce these policies, uh, um, uh, allocate money for climate finance, that kind of thing. They could. So I, I don't think we should li literally limit the ability to take climate action to conferences. But um, because that, that only seems like the only opportunity to hold um, governments accountable. But anyway, let's look at what, what happens at uh, COP26 specifically. What happens at COP26 or goes into uh, the decisions that made at COP26 are decided far before the conference that happens. Because I mean, the, the ability to make these commitments uh, depend on the approval um, from from what the country wants, from what parliament wants, especially from the global north in terms of allocating climate finance. So the reason uh, the, the global north countries are not, for instance, allocating more money for climate finance, that's because their parliaments or uh, their decision-making frameworks do not even approve it in the first place. So there's that. It's one thing to make a commitment, but it's another 
to actually approve uh, for it to materialize. And if actually all commitments that are made at COP26 were actually to solve the climate crisis, then there would it would have. Um, I don't think the climate crisis would even be a problem by now. But um, th these are all empty speeches, empty promises that happens in these spaces. So I think it's one thing to realize that um, it's more of like a show of opportunity as opposed to actually serious opportunity where, you know what, let's tackle the climate crisis. So there is that. Um, I, think, I think in terms of what happens back door, um, if you look at the recent global witness report that was actually released, uh, and it said that fossil fuel companies, if they had, if they were compiled into one delegation, then they would have uh, the biggest delegation bigger than any other country. So they had more than 500 people uh, in presence, uh, in their presence there. So I think uh, the, their influence in this decision-making spaces is huge. And that is why I think it is important to, I, and I would advocate for the introduction of a conflict of interest policy, because um, the, fossil, the very people causing the problem shouldn't be the very, pe very people in the decision-making spaces that are supposed to actually, you know, stop their activities, you know? So that is, that is one thing to think about. Um, what else makes, I think, um, I, th I think it it's mostly a lack of commitment from, from global North countries that um, makes it very hard for COP26 to actually make, um, make a significant action. Yeah. Yeah. And so then, yeah, then it, so my next question is, so the pledge for this uh, COP26 was um to reduce carbon emissions by uh, 45 percent by 2030 and then to net zero by 2050 um do you think based on what you heard based on what you've just said about you know having 26 of these do you think that's possible do you think that's realistic do you think that's too ambitious do you think that's just a way to keep us quiet what are your what's your take on um there isn't um un energy agency reports uh, that was released was that uh, uh, carbon emissions have been higher than ever. I think that was released this year in February. That you know, energy emissions peak, carbon emissions peaked this year. So you can imagine. Um, I think is there hope? I mean, you've said that this is the twenty sixth opportunity to tackle the climate twenty sixth failed opportunity to tackle the climate crisis. So is there hope? I think there is hope, and I drain my, I get my hope mainly from the existing resistance. I, I, I think if you were to only look at it from uh, the world leaders perspective, then I think that would be dooming. Mm. Uh, but I think if you look at it from the resistance that um, has been sparked from this inaction, you know, uh, the cognitive dissonance in this spaces, especially at COP26 is astounding. But um, that kind of um, inaction is sparking a global movement. Um, that is resisting. If you find it in local communities, mm -hmm. and I think that's where I get my hope from. And um, if you even look at it from um, the recent IPCC report, I mean, there is, there is, I think there still is hope. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. And again, you're leading very nicely into to all my questions, which is great. Um, so I know I said earlier that there's obviously still resistance to climate change, even though there's clear evidence, scientific evidence that proves that there is, um, you know the um, temperatures are rising. There's obviously lots of issues that we've mentioned earlier. Um, and so, yeah, we've seen since um, 
COVID that there's been a huge rise in a lot of movements. So we've got, you know, Black Lives Matter, climate change has been absolutely huge, particularly with young people. Um, do, you, do you have any thoughts, particularly because you were at COP26 speaking to all these young people that were there, what's kind of spiraled this change? Do you think the, the COVID pandemic, us being at home and having time to think about things has kind of made us more passionate about things or make us think, you know, but this is our time this, to make a change or, you know, what, what do you think are the reasons that we've had such a big, um, yeah, big movement to, to fight against climate change more than before, I would say. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are. Dun, dun, dun. Well, <laughs> well, well. What has happened? So, of course, there has, there has been an increased resistance. But also, if you look at it, much the increased resistance with worsening impacts of the climate crisis. So from the local community perspective, people are actually taking action because the impacts of the climate crisis is literally worsening. And uh, you are left with no choice but to actually rebel, that kind of thing. So there is, there is um, the aspect of like local communities are literally being affected by the climate crisis and the impacts of the crisis worsening. And as a result, it is sparking action from local communities. So that is one thing to think about. And that is why, um, especially from a local people um, perspective, local person perspective, then I think that is what is sparking a movement, especially in the global south, which is of course disproportionately affected by the climate crisis. So I think that is one thing, but also the increased in action by the climate of, um, of um, the increased in action or evidence of, um, you know, um, in action uh, by world leaders and increased reports, you know, it's worsening, that kind of thing. I think that is also sparking action by itself. And that is something to think about. And also from the increased calls from people from the global south, I think it has been, or even BIPOC communities, it has definitely caused an awakening. And you know what? Okay, yeah. Uh, especially from privileged people or even white people um, in the global north or even privileged people here in the global south. It has definitely caused an awakening that, you know what, okay, yeah, um, I see your point. We need to work on this. So that kind of thing. And I feel like um, uh, it's it's increased injustices on seeing the need. It's from a shared humanity that, you know what, yeah, we need to um, take action. At least that's from my perspective. But it's also very generalized and it's far much more nuanced, I guess. Yeah. yeah 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 I guess uh, as we've mentioned earlier it's people are seeing and you just said seeing the effects on their everyday their day-to-day -day lives so it's like actually this needs to be my problem now this is not a problem that's far away this is something that actually affects me and it's a shame it's had to get to that point but if that's what's going to create change and I guess we need to we need to take it um so from your perspective then what would you say is the biggest threat to climate to our climate so is it fossil fuel is it energy is it um food distribution um well i think the biggest threat to our climate is capitalism i think that's the biggest threat to our climate it's mm -hmm. capitalism and neo-colonialism and new, i think let me put it well neoliberal capitalism and uh, neo-colonialism i think that's the that's the biggest threat to our climate and I don't know, and it all bubbles down. I mean, to for even the fossil fuel industries, they still want to make profit. They have their own capitalist interests. They still want to make profit as a result. Uh, and that is why we need to dismantle the systems because we need to have a system that puts people and the planet over profit. So that kind of thing. Um, I mean, even neo-colonialism, if you look at, I mean, it's one thing to actually uh, 
people in the global south are not only affected by the impacts of the climate crisis, but also that of the so-called solutions. And that is why I think it is important. Um, it reminds me of Kumi Naidu's quote that goes like, all climate works are, all climate justice works are climate works, but not necessarily all climate works are climate justice works. And in fact, some climate works could be creating climate injustices. And if you even look at it from the point of, um, of a um, shift to renewable energy, which I think there is consensus on. There is the aspect of 70% um, of the world's cobalt coming from DRC, and these communities actually don't reap, uh, are um, exploited. Um, they are underpaid, that kind of thing, and the benefits don't actually go on local communities. Mm -hmm. They're going uh, from the people who are benefiting it from this um, profits are actually, or from this minerals are actually multinational companies. Mm -hmm. And that is what I was talking about neoliberal um, um, capitalism, I guess, so, and uh, neo imperialism, neocolonialism, whatever. Um, it, I think the, the, it's a think about the climate crisis from a systemic problem, and we need a system change in order to um, uh, to avert uh, this crisis, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I guess final uh, question really is, um, which is a, a few in one, it's kind of, yeah, what's your future plan in kind of advocating for the climate? And then, you know, what's who is your biggest inspiration or what is your biggest inspiration um, and how have how has the individual or or whatever you know whatever it is influenced you and 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 benefit and helps you kind of do your day-to-day -day? well um i think for me what, what inspires me to be honest i became a climate uh, climate justice organizer out of necessity it's not necessarily because i was like into into like environmentalism or like nature that kind of thing it is because there is literally no choice and i guess that is that is uh why other people also become like climate activism if you're an anti-racist organizer it's because you literally cannot take uh yeah. um the racism or that kind of thing it's because there's literally no choice once um the system is unjust and it pushes you to the end you actually rebel that kind of thing and what inspires me to keep going i guess is the fact that there is increased resistance and we're actually building community i i for one think that we can actually do this yeah yeah. Okay. Great. Well, thank you so much, Eric. It's been a pleasure uh, speaking to you. Um, I've, I've been following your work and I, I'm a big fan. So personally, this is actually very um, inspirational chat for me. And I hope that um, you've have touched many other young people and inspired many. And I know you do already with your, your fan base. Um, so I don't know whether you have any final kind of words, comments, um, just to, to the listeners about, you know, galvanize people to really I think what you said is really important about necessity and I think this should be something that we should all be you know be aware of whether we can see it you know we, whether we can see the effects of climate change on our day-to-day -day, or whether it's people who live far away from us or even sometimes people that live close because um, obviously this podcast is about inspiring motivating people to do whatever they can for local community um, near and far. Um, I think that very tangible tangible um next steps or CTA call to action would be at an individual level, at least try to learn and learn. Mm -hmm. I think um, thinking about it from a systemic point of view, you realize um, what the system actually is and how it um, 
you know, um, interacts with our own daily lives and leads to the oppression and how climate crisis is, a, the climate, uh, climate change is a systemic issue. So I think um, at an individual level, I think it's important to learn and learn, um, read about, um, you know, capitalism, colonialism, that kind of thing. And also um, join, join community groups who are actually working to take action. Um, is it your local Fridays for Future? Is it your local BLM group? Is it your local um, organization that you know that is working uh, at grassroots level? And if if you don't find a group that you agree with, then why don't you actually work to bring people together in your own community and um, create that space that you want to see working towards um, fighting for uh, fighting against injustice? So I think. I think that that's basically what I'd do, I guess. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, Eric. And thank you, everybody, for listening. This is Paris Card Podcast, speaking to Eric Jogona, climate change activist from Kenya, well, Nairobi, Kenya. Is that right? It's Nairobi, isn't it, that you're currently based? I just kind of assumed. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And see you soon. Bye. Bye.